You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to episode 153 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on the Women of the Lord of the Rings. I'm Ilya Danner Grubbs, and with me today are Christina Bieber Lake and Brian Grubbs. Hello, everyone. Hello. Let's introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Christina, why don't you go first? Sure. I'm Christina Bieber Lake. Uh, my normal job is to teach English at Wheaton College, which I've done for over 20 years. But this year, I am the Carl F. H. Henry, one of the senior research residents at the Carl F. H. Henry Center in Trinity up in Deerfield. Illinois, where I am researching the uh, uh, theology of the imagination. That's amazing. That sounds really cool. I'm very happy. Yeah, that's fantastic. Brian, what about you? My name is Brian Grubbs. I uh, live in Birmingham, Alabama with my wife, Ilya, and our two kids. I work in human resources at a major automotive supplier. Thanks. And yes, Brian is my husband. We live together in Alabama, so it's kind of redundant to say all that again. But um, I am excited to have him on. This is his first time on the Christian Feminist Podcast, and uh, he is uh, our resident Lord of the Rings expert in the family and the uh, Southeast, probably. So um, I'm excited to have him on so we can talk about this today. Um, and before we dive into our actual discussion, I wanted to get just a little bit of a background on our experiences um, with Tolkien's work. Um, I'm calling this the Women of the Lord of the Rings, but it is going to cover all of Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth mythology, the Hobbit, the Silmarillion, and um, other extended texts. Um, my personal experience, I uh, read it in high school and did not get excited about it at first. Um, actually quit about halfway through the second book, which I have soon learned is, I've since learned is pretty normal um when when it gets to be kind of a slog in the middle um i was very confused for a long time because i thought sauron and saruman were the same person um and so you can imagine my confusion um and uh it was actually brian who encouraged me to try and read it again a little bit later and um i definitely appreciated it more the second time once i got some of those things cleared up um and then uh loved the movies and that really kind of put some things together for me um seeing some of the battles and things in a way that I hadn't been able to kind of visualize and then going back and reading it again. I really loved it more and uh, have have cosplayed Arwen actually at one of the midnight showings of the movie um, and uh, really got into it with Brian. And uh, we've read it together twice now um, out loud. And um, he like drew all the maps of the different battles and like helped me see it and everything. I'm a very visual learner, obviously. So that's that's my experience with it. Um but Christina, what about you? <laughs> wow, that that passion is going to be hard to match. <laughs> um, I read The Hobbit when I was in my twenties, and and I I did not like it at all. So I stayed away from The Lord of the Rings. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, the first time was not not so great. I mean, it was I, I was, and I still don't like The Hobbit. Okay, um, and I even less like the movies, but we won't even go there. Um, oh yeah, no. <laughs> but when the yeah, when no. the yeah <laughs> when the Peter Jackson movies of the Lord of the Rings were coming out, I was like, okay, I'm a literature professor. I teach at Wheaton College. I need to read Lord of the Rings before these films come out. So I started the trilogy at that point. And so it's really late to the game. And I didn't finish it until the movies came the first movie had come out, right? And it took me a long time um, then after that to actually finish the whole book. But I love the films. So so I'm probably like the least passionate uh, here, but I did love the films. That's awesome. Brian, what about you? <laughs> so um, I first read The Hobbit uh, when I was nine. 
and I, I liked The Hobbit, but my brother told me that I should read The Lord of the Rings too. Uh, so I dove straight into that, um, which began my uh, longstanding tradition. I did it probably until I was 25 or 26 of reading through the Lord of the Rings trilogy every year. Um, so yeah, I kind of I kind of like it. Uh, I really got you're one of those. You're yeah, one of those that reads it every year. Uh-huh. I, ha- I haven't done an annual reading in a while, though. I just have uh, read back through it recently. Uh, we read it uh, via Skype to a bunch of people uh, during the pandemic. So um, from there, went into the Silmarillion, on into the, the extended Legendarium. Um, I am was a, a huge fan of the literature. Then the Peter Jackson movies came out. Um, I really I love them as movies. I have slight problems of them as adaptations as far as Lord of the Rings go. But as movies, I think they are fantastic. And again, we're not going to mention the other three movies that he made. Um I am also part of a group that does, uh, we call it living history, but it's not actually history. It's uh, the Middle Earth Rangers. Uh, We kind of cosplay and do functional cosplay as far as figuring out what kind of skills you would actually need to bring uh, a ranger of Middle Earth to life. So I am kind of super fun nerd. But yeah, so that's my experience with it. Yeah, it is very cool. Um, all right. Well, before we actually get into a discussion, um, let's just go through who are the main women of the Lord of the Rings and, and the, the Lord of the Rings, you know, universe um, and maybe just a little bit of background about them so that we know who we're talking about. Brian, do you have uh, a little overview for us? Yes. As a matter of fact, so uh, we're going to talk first about just the, the Lord of the Rings books. Um, I could give an honorary mention to The Hobbit, but the act- in the actual Hobbit book, there are no women that are named. Uh, we have a mention of Thorin's sister, Dees, but they don't actually name her there. We only know her name because it's in one of the genealogies. Uh, but she is named in uh, when they're talking after the Battle of Five Armies because she was the mother of Feely and Keely and Thorin's sister. Uh, so moving on into... The actual Lord of the Rings, there's a few main female characters that we see in the books. Uh, the first one we meet is actually Lobelia Sackville Baggins, and she is Bilbo's cousin. Uh, we meet her uh, right after the party. They, they mention her uh, earlier than that, but we actually meet her after the party when she comes with her husband to Bag End to contest the will. Uh, she was not at all happy with that. And in my opinion, I don't know, she has one of the most interesting story arcs. Because we see her there at the beginning. She's very much an antagonist. She was set up as an antagonist at the end of The Hobbit, though it doesn't mention her by name. We do find out that the Sackville Bagginses had tried to buy Bilbo's house when he was presumed dead when he was gone during The Hobbit book. Um, But she's definitely set up as an antagonist at the beginning. But by the time we get to the end of the book, she is – one, she's kind of a picture of what happens when you think somebody's on your side and it turns out that they're just a monster because she is the – the mother of Lotho Sackville Baggins, who works with Saruman at the end of the book. And she ends up being taken to prison by the people that are working for Saruman. So that's really when the hobbits learn that there is no longer a hobbit in control of what's going on in the Shire. Um, But at the end, because she had stood up to uh, the soldiers of Saruman, she's hailed as a hero uh, when she comes out. they all the hobbits are cheering for her and there's this big emotional moment. And when she dies, she actually wills all of her stuff to Frodo, all of her property, all of her money for him to use for the repairing of the damage that was done to the Shire. So very cool character arc for just what is kind of a minor character, but she's the first named female that we get in the books. Uh, From there, we meet uh, Goldberry who's the wife of Tom Bombadil, who doesn't show up in the films for obvious reasons, because Tom Bombadil would be really hard to, interpret in film, uh, but uh, her as a character living with Tom Bombadil in the Old Forest is a very um, Adam and Eve kind of picture of this uh, kind of perfect, idyllic world. And there's a lot of discussion that could be had about them as characters and who they are, but uh, we don't know a lot about them, so most of it's speculation. Uh, from there, we get to Rivendell and we meet Arwen very, very briefly. We don't actually have any lines from her then, but we find out who she is. We see her there with her father, Elrond, and we see her there with Aragorn. Obviously, Arwen is very, very crucial to 
the story, um, but most of what we know about her we find out from reading the appendices uh, in the story about the story of Aragorn and Arwen. Uh, she obviously is the daughter of Elrond. She is over a thousand years old at the time we get we meet her in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the movies definitely changed her character slightly, made her more part of the action. I think that was probably a good stance from a filmmaking point, because otherwise you have this person show up at the end of the movie and you're like, why are you important? So they gave her more interaction. But in the books, one of the main themes of the books, period, all the way across all of Tolkien's work is hope. Obviously, uh, Aragorn's name in exile was Estelle, which means hope, which we're going to come back to Estelle in a little bit, completely unrelated to Aragorn. Um, but one of the things that we see about her and that we know about her is at the end of the books, when all of the, the rangers show up to help Aragorn, they bring with them a banner. And it's the, the banner of the king of Gondor that Arwen's been working on for years in secret. So it's this great picture of this hope, and that's the theme that's carried on throughout, throughout the books. Uh, we see her again at the end of the books uh, when she and her father show up at um, Minas Tirith. And there's the wedding there, and we have this uh, this great uh, culmination of the the end of the story. And then if you read in the appendices the story of Aragorn and Arwen, it's beautiful and heartbreaking. So if you want a good cry, go read that. We also meet uh, a little bit farther on. We meet Galadriel once they get to Lothlorien. Now, Galadriel, speaking of character arcs, we see a little bit of her in the Lord of the Rings, but her main character arc comes from the Silmarillion because she is a, a high elf that was born in the Undying Lands and went into exile with all of the rest of the Noldor uh, after Fëanor did his thing and ruined everything for everybody. Um, but she comes to Middle-earth, and one of her driving reasons for doing that is to – she wants a kingdom. She wants a place to rule. She wants dominion. And – that drives some of her decisions through the Silmarillion, but by the time we meet her in The Lord of the Rings, she's really given that up. Um, and you see some of the picture of that in the scene where Frodo offers her the ring, where she shows that she's tempted. And it's a powerful thing by itself if you don't know about her history. But if you realize that she left the actual, basically, heaven on Earth to come to Earth so that she could rule, and then she was offered the ability to do that. You know, she's offered ultimate power and she turned it down. I didn't it really, know that whole background. That's very helpful. Yeah, it, it had so much more like it. The legendarium just put so many layers behind every decision that's made in the Lord of the Rings. So she she is one of my favorite characters in the legendarium period. Um, she is immensely powerful. Um, another thing for her as far as character arc is we see her befriending Gimli. Which. We kind of get a hint that there's some racial tension between the elves and the dwarves, but Galadriel lived in Doriath with Thingol and Melian, who were the parents of Luthien, who we'll talk about in a second. But Doriath was sacked by dwarves. That's how Thingol was killed, and that's how that kingdom ended, was dwarves sacked it to get one of the Silmarils, which did ruin everything. The Silmarils were behind almost every bad thing that happened in the Silmarillion. So that's where her racial tension comes from. The kingdom that she grew up in, that she spent all of this time in under the teaching of Melian, she gained so much knowledge. That was killed. All of those people were killed by dwarves. So it's not just we don't like them because they're different. It's a group of your people murdered a bunch of my people. A long time ago, and she's thousands upon thousands of years old, and she has a really good memory. So to see her befriending Gimli and, and going beyond befriending Gimli, giving him something that no one else was ever given when she gives him the hair. Uh, this is something that Fionor had actually asked for a piece of her hair in the Silmarillion, and she turned him down. So when all the dwarves, when all the elves are like gasping because he has the audacity to ask for a piece of her hair, it's because they remember like one of the most powerful elves that ever lived asked her for her hair and, and she turned him down. And she said, no, you can't, you can't do that. So again, very cool character arc on her part. Uh, we just talked about Luthien. We don't actually have Luthien in the Lord of the Rings, but she is uh, spoken about 
the uh, Aragorn actually tells the story of Baron and Luthien, and we'll kind of get into her story a little bit more when we talk about the uh, extended um, legendarium with the Silmarillion and the Lost Tales and all that stuff. We get into book two, we get to meet Eowyn, who is another uh, fantastic character. She is a member of the royal household of the Rohirrim. She's the sister to Eomir and the niece of Theoden. When we meet her, she's in a, a caretaker role. Uh, she is taking care of this aging king. She helps him around. Um, but when Gandalf shows up on scene, we see that that caretaker role is no longer necessary because Theoden is cured. He uh, no longer has to use a walking stick, and now he's running around and fighting stuff. Um, but Eowyn is not – she's very um, resentful of that role because she feels like anybody could do that. She has the desire for, for valor and combat, and it's not something that they deny that she's capable of because they – women are trained to fight. But – it's a, it's an interesting, and we'll kind of probably get into the discussion of this later. You know how much of it is her being angry because of it's it's the woman's role, and how much of it is just specifically because of her situation. Because as part of the ruling house, um, and Theoden brings this up several times in the books, that the people will follow her, and she needs to stay behind. Not necessarily just because she's a woman, but because she's part of the house. Of Aeorol. she's yeah. It's almost more of, of a part class of family. It's almost more of a class distinction than a gender distinction. Exactly. No, there definitely is the gender distinction, and she brings that up, and she's absolutely right. Um, but ultimately, we see her going against the wishes of King Theoden and joining this um, the armies of Rohan as they travel across Middle Earth to Minas Tirith to take place in that battle. But again, it's tied to hope because for her, she's she's lost her hope. Um, she had taken a lot of um, when, when Aragorn comes on the scene and we see the king being restored. She thinks that, you know, now there's a time for me to 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 have distinction. There's obviously the uh, relationship with her and Aragorn, and she is very interested in him and he is not interested in her. She actually asks if she can go with him through the paths of the dead and it's a whole thing. Uh, but when he leaves and that's the, you know, the one more person tells her she has to stay behind, she loses her hope and she chooses to disguise herself. And she picks up a hobbit companion who doesn't realize who she is until the last second. Um, yeah, they ride across middle earth and she ends up in the battle of Pelennor fields where the uh, the prophecy that was made by Glorfindel way back in the past about the Witch King of Angmar comes true when he's all bragging about how no man can kill him, but she's not, and she totally kills him, and it's amazing. So, talking well, about she, she and Mary, she and Mary, yeah, and we're not gonna we're not gonna cheapen Mary's part and the part of whichever Smith back in days of yore made the blade that he got from the Barrow Downs, which was essential to separating the soul from the, the body of the witch king. But, and then her, but that's not the end of her arc. Then we see her going through like recovering from the trauma of everything that's gone, not only the physical trauma, but in the, the chapter on the houses of healing, it's very specific that her trauma, the main thing that she's dealing with is not the, the injury because the, the, the head of the houses of healing says like, there's nothing wrong with her body, like her arms healing, she's fine, but she's like wasting away because, because again, you know, going back to that hope, she, her hope had become, I'm, I'm, I can't do anything else, so I'm just going to die in battle, and then she doesn't. So she had put all of her, you know, she divested her whole character into dying in battle. That was denied to her. She didn't know where to go from there, and so we we get to see her character go through a healing arc, finding finding new purpose. I don't think that we ever see her become less of a character. Um, you know, she doesn't become no longer this this shield maiden because her name throughout the rest of this is the Lady of the Shield Arm. Like that's how they refer to her on through her um, the rest of her life because of the the injury that she had received. Like she has this 
this wicked cool battle name that she carries throughout the rest of her life. But we see her her hope restored and her becoming a more um, you know, a healed character after that. Okay, so those are the main characters, um, but there are some other minor characters. Um, do you just want to go th- through those really quickly, and then we're going to discuss a couple of things about them? Yes, yes. So a few minor characters from The Lord of the Rings. We have uh, Rosie Cotton, the wife of Samwise, who has a couple of lines at towards the end of the book, um, and we know that she and Sam settle down and have 13 kids. Uh, we have um, Gilrein, who is mentioned, who's the mother of Aragorn. Uh, who gives him the name of Estelle, which means hope. Uh, we have uh, Eoreth, who is one of the ladies that works at the Houses of Healing and who is there on site. And we actually have this great conversation between her and one of her kinswomen during the coronation where she's trying to like tell her kinswoman this cool story about something that Gandalf said to her, but she keeps getting shushed because uh, she's interrupting the ceremony. Um so those are some of the, the ancillary characters within the Lord of the Rings. And then if you go into the full Silmarillion, I just wanted to name drop a couple. Uh, we have um, Morwen, who's the mother of Turin Turambar, who is a very key character in the Silmarillion. She is uh, talking about she's, – she's very similar to Arwen in that she is from a ruling family, um, and she uh, – it's interesting, like when the, the invaders come in, they occupy her territory. She is such a force of nature that everybody's terrified of her and won't mess with her. Uh, even though she is the wife of the former king of the area that they're in, they won't mess with her and her household because they respect her so much. So she's a pretty cool character. And then we also have uh, Andreth, who is part of this gorgeous conversation between her and Finrod, uh, the uh, one of the elven kings, and it's called the Athrobeth, uh, where they discuss hope. And she's another character from the extended legendarium that's one of my favorites. There's also um, the a couple more that I was thinking about, like the Entwives are notable yes. because they're not there, right? Yep. They're they're absent, they're they're missing. And then Sheila is another uh, interesting female character, the the giant spider that they fight. Um, it's interesting that she is re- repeatedly referred to um, in feminine terms, but we will get into that a little bit in, in a little bit. Um, well, thank you for that. That was amazingly comprehensive. I love it. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion over the years about the women of Lord of the Rings. OK, we are not new to this discussion. Um, a lot of critics say that this is a story about men written for boys. Um, Tolkien himself grew up in mostly male spaces. Uh, he was raised by a Catholic priest and he went to all boys schools and universities and he was in the military and, um, even the Inklings were an all male group. But, um, so, th- so there's just kind of criticism that he writes men because that's what he's, you know, he's just not really around women. And, um, but then other critics applaud his female characters and talk about them as powerful and complex. So let's just start out by asking, do you think Tolkien writes female characters well, Christina? Well, that's a that's a great question, and um, I just want to say at the outset that though I am a, a literature scholar, I am an Americanist, and I am not a Tolkien expert. Furthermore, I'm not a huge fan of reading fantasy. Okay, so I want to say that at the outset, and so somebody out there listening might be kind of. Uh, upset with some of the things that I'm going to say, <laughs> because there's a way in which writing fantasy kind of uh, lets you get away with um, archetypes and creating archetypes um, because you're creating a, a mythology, right? But mm-hmm. so he's he's within the type of genre that he is writing. I think he does pretty good women, but the genre itself is not not going to give you complex in the same way that a novel would, right? And so I just want to, you know, part of it is a genre issue. That part of my struggle is a genre issue. That's a really interesting distinction, yeah. yeah. But like Arwen, for example, especially in the films, um, is just so astonishing an example of the eternal feminine and all all the problems that I have with that – that it just needs to be said at the outset, you know, this kind of um, creation by eternal feminine. I'm talking about like you know, 19th century. There was, you know, in Goethe and several other writers, um, you know, uncovered by Simone de Beauvoir and others that um, 
you know, men would write women or depict women in ways that they need them to be, right? Not in ways that they actually are. So that uh, femininity is a is a construct of of a gender essentialism, right? And so I think that Tolkien is definitely more guilty than not of a gender essentialism. So, but in the character of Arwen, that's that's kind of one of the most uh, you know, the places where you see it the most. So, so, and the problem of course with that is, is stuff that we can discuss to, together. Um, and I, and I really would like to hear what both of you have to say about why is it that Christians are so enamored of, of archetypes, right? Um, like the, especially for, for women. Um, cause it's always funny. Cause like a week you you'll always have, uh, women who are in like a class, the fantasy class, pointing out this to men and the men are like, what? <laughs> they're, they're like, <laughs> That's funny. You know, it's just a, it's a shock to them to, to, for them to realize that, no, these, these characters are not really what women are like. And that, that women who don't like, who aren't like this are considered to be unfeminine. Not that the, the archetype is ever challenged, right? It, it's the feminine, it's the individual woman who is challenged. And that's what Simone de Beauvoir's main point was that a woman is judged by the type, by the archetype, by the myth. Um, the myth is not judged by her. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do you think that part of it is because since Tolkien was a, an English scholar um, mm-hmm. and and was very much um, a scholar of, you know, medieval literature and old English and you know, all that, that that some of those kind of tropes come out. Right. We see like the virgin, the mother, the um, like the confined and obedient version of femininity in Arwen versus the unconfined and troublesome version in Aowen. Like some of those kind of patterns, like I feel like that. And again, because he had so little access to women in real life. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I mean, I mean, his parents died very early, so he didn't even really have a mother. Like I said, he was raised by a, a Catholic priest, so he didn't even have a maternal influence, you know? So, so I, I feel like like, he just kind of had this idealized version of femininity from literature. Yes. And and then that kind of translates to, and then at the end it translates back to his real life because um, Brian mentioned the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, you know, he very much um, used that as kind of a, an analogy for his relationship to his wife. It's written on their tombstones, Baron and Luthien. Um, huh. and so like, I feel like he took, he took, he used literature to form his idea of women and then used that to form his, like, relationship with actual women. Um, yes, and, which and is very pro- problematic, right? Yeah, because yeah. eventually, I mean, wouldn't you love to talk to his wife? But, you know. Uh, yeah, and we, we know that, like, she, I think it was her, it was either her or C.S. Lewis's wife, but I think it was, it was her that, uh, kind of resented the Inklings meetings and felt like that they were yeah. kind of consuming his time and everything. And, um, yeah, that is, that is very interesting. Brian, what do you think? I think that there's definitely, um, you know, talking about his, his upraising and, um, you mentioned like being raised by a Catholic and there's so much of that, that veneration, obviously being core to the Catholic faith, you know, the veneration of Mary. You, know, you get so much of that in – you get a little bit of it in The Lord of the Rings. You get so much of it in The Silmarillion. Um, when you go in and you see the writings, when you see Luthien as a character, she's this yeah, – she's she is definitely an archetype. There's, there's so little – like she's an amazing character. She's one of the most powerful characters in creation that we see, you know, but she's – She's a venerated character, and we see that coming through in The Lord of the Rings with the way that she's spoken about, with the way Arwen is compared to her. Um, she is really, you know, she is referred to as the most beautiful of the children of Iluvatar. Um, and she's the like, the pinnacle, and then Arwen's like the basically the second coming of the pinnacle. She's the even star of her people. It's like, you know, their glory as it's fading and all this stuff. Um, I think that that, that is definitely true. Um, he, we, we know that he was specifically trying to create a myth. So, um, obviously he's going to use mythic language, but I had never really yes, considered yeah. the fact that he didn't have a lot of real world experience because of the lack of, um, maternal influence growing up. Um, 
when when all you're reading is is the Elder Edda and Beowulf and stuff like that, maybe maybe you don't have the best grasp of. But that comes through in his male characters to an extent as well. I just think it's much much more egregious oh, yeah. with his female characters. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it, that that's it, exactly right. Yeah, I, I think that's true too. That his his male characters are a little bit of archetypes too, right? They're, they're, they're all a little bit of this kind of idealized version of one aspect of humanity, whether that's the warrior or the philosopher or the wise sage or whatever. That, that's a good point. And, but except for the hobbits, right? Like the hobbits are the, the least archetypal mm-hmm. and the most English. And, and that's why Lobelia is such mm-hmm. an interesting character, right? And we need to spend some time. She might be, for lack of a better word, the most realistic, the most human of, even though she's a hobbit, uh, right? <laughs> I would love to hear what you guys have to say about her as a character. Um, is she more well-rounded, you know, is right? Having flaws and faults, um, but then kind of emerging out of those flaws and faults, right? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that um, as being the, the most normal, you know? Yeah, we, we use all of these other characters like there's there's we have so much limited experience with them we only see most of the characters at their best or um you know we see more in in eowyn's case uh with all the different aspects of her life but it's still very mythic but lobelia is just this grumpy old hobbit woman who is really mad that she didn't get the house that she wanted but it ends up that she's still a hobbit and the the thing that Tolkien, when he's when he's looking at hobbits, hobbits are as a as a race idealized. You know, it's it's this pastoral image of the England that he imagined. Exactly. Um, but she's the most hobbity of hobbits. She's everything that a regular human would be. But at the end of the day, she values the same things that other hobbits value. She values, you know, peace and restoration and she you know her her husband dies before we get to the lord of the rings and that that's a whole thing and she's just like when she finally gets to buy back in she's really obnoxious about it but we see her being a character that is moved by other people's concern for her um right we see her taking and and really dedicating the rest of her life and her resources to fixing the wrongs that she felt responsible for since her son is the one that really brought Saruman and his forces in. Um, yeah. And so she takes responsibility for that. That's yeah. a huge thing, right? Um, being able to admit that you've made a mistake that, you know, <laughs> those are huge things. Absolutely. One thing that um, Tolkien himself talked about in some of his letters is the idea of the the hobbits. Specifically, he's talking about Rosie and Eorith, but I think this also applies to Lobelia too, that they are um, the mediator between the audience and the myth, right? They're the most relatable characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they're the ones who kind of translate the reality of what happened uh, on a large scale to something that you can process. We see, like you were talking about, Yorth talking to her kinswoman about, you know, this story that she saw and already trying to myth- mythologize it, you know. Um, and I think there's some of that with Lobelia too. Like we identify with Lobelia as having, you know, our own little grumpy days, but in the end, we still care about the things that matter in a way that we might not relate to Eowyn going to battle or to Aragorn or whatever, you know, like there are definitely relatable parts to all of them, but, but I feel like those are, I think he's right that the, those are the, the translators between the myth and the reality. That's a really good thing to, I did not have not read those letters and that's very helpful to, to hear him put it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so therefore they really are the, the realism again, for lack of a better word, kind of is on their shoulder. The relatability is on their shoulders. And, and that's also where the power of the, of the films mm-hmm. and the novels come from because right, Sam is a, especially I would say Sam is an ordinary guy, you know, as ordinary right. as they get. <laughs> right. Um, and, and then um, can, can have extraordinary courage um, and hope and, and, you know, things of that nature. One thing I came across. I think that's... Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to kind of piggyback on that comment talking about Sam. So like Sam and Rosie are the commoners, like everybody, all the other hobbits, like Frodo is, from a very wealthy family, 
Mary and Pippin right. are, are literal nobility, and Sam's just a gardener. Rosie's just a, a, kid, a friend that he grew up with, and ultimately the um, – like the the weight of the what am I thinking the lineage of this all comes to them because they inherit Bag End they inherit the story they inherit the Red Book he passes it That's on true. to his oldest daughter who was one of the handmaidens of Arwen like the 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 story passes to them like it, it involves all of these noble characters but they are the ones who ultimately bring it to us in a literal sense because they're the ones that compile the book at the end. And isn't that a beautiful picture of how Tolkien sees mythology in general of taking this grand idea, these stories that are larger than life, but then putting them in the hands of you and I so that we can use them in our everyday life for hope, for strength, for, you know, the passing on of culture and and, you know, the values and everything like that. Well, another thing that I can. Another thing that I came across in my reading was um, this idea of um, what they call the Valkyrie reflex, which is where an author writes mostly male characters and then will throw in a couple of female characters that are really overpowered to kind of make up for the fact that there's not a lot of them. And I hadn't heard that term before, but I was like, oh, I kind of see that. Now, of course, I'm not talking about the, the Hobbit characters because they're kind of minor characters if you look at, like, number of pages covered. Um, but do you think there's some of that going on with, like, Luthien and Galadriel, some of these really overpowered females trying to make up for the fact that there just aren't very many of them at all? I would definitely say that that's the case with with Eowyn um, and Galadriel, who are, you know, two of my favorite characters. So I just want to say, you know, but I mean, because right. strong women characters are appealing, right? Um and because they're not also typically feminine in that kind of eternal feminine kind of way. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, they both have to be beautiful. Right. That's the other thing that uh, mm-hmm. is, is problematic from from my point of view. But, yeah, I do think I've not heard that term Valkyrie complex before either. But that does make a lot of sense of of this. But that's why I think the development of Eowyn's story arc is. And as David, uh, um, Brian was talking about, is just really interesting to me, right? Like that she has to have this healing uh, story being told about her is, I think kind of pulls against that Valkyrie complex quite a bit. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and makes her character even more appealing. Um, You know, one thing I, Go ahead. ahead. I I was just one thing I noted, uh, I've read that I did not know before was that um, Eowyn was written because Tolkien's daughter Priscilla asked him to write a more strong female character when she was a teenager. He was in the middle of writing and she said, like, there's no women and the women that there are aren't really very strong willed. They don't have agency. And so he wrote this character for her. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. And that just goes to show you that it mm-hmm. wasn't in his mind. Mm-hmm. Like, this was not, you know, and that he doesn't realize that this can be or didn't sort of think about this as femininity, right? Mm-hmm. As, you know, like a, a Joe type, type of character in, um, you know, Little Women or, you know, is can be feminine as well, right? It just, it's like my mm-hmm. dad, like my dad just doesn't think of it in those terms, you know? It's like women wear dresses, you know, and this is what they, you know, they wouldn't want to go to battle. They wouldn't want to do, you know, and it's it's like, well, no, that's not always true. Sometimes <laughs> they want to play sports and sometimes they want to, you know, do other things that that men are doing. And so I would like to go back to that question, um, Brian, that you raised while you were talking about her character arc um, about, you know, why she wants to go to battle and things like that um, and how that plays in with this the, the her being depicted as a woman. Can we go back to that question? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just looking at, you know, I think the movies did a pretty good job of depicting this because they took several conversations that kind of happened off screen and had the, the characters in the movies actually speaking them. So her talking about, you know, fearing being put in a cage until all desire for, you know, valor and recognition uh, is lost. You know, she doesn't want to grow old without having a chance to experience to, for glory, right? Which is very similar yeah. to Galadriel. 
in a lot of ways. Like it's their character arcs. There's some definite overlap there. Um, but she she saw the entire time that she was dealing with Theoden as, you know, I'm doing this because I love my uncle. It's my duty to my family. And, you know, she she was fearing that she would just be there and she would be caring for him until it was too late and she didn't have any other options. And then he's healed and she's like, oh, wait, I can do stuff now. I can go to battle now. And they were like, no, you can't. So she wants to be a captain. She wants the recognition of being a battlefield leader because she's in a very martial culture. Uh, they, yeah, everything about the Rohirrim, if you're looking at how they're, you know, they're based on like the Anglo-Saxon, they're, they're incredibly warlike people. They sing songs while they go to battle. Like this is to them, this is like the pinnacle of society. If you're, if you're a, a, a war leader in their society, then you get songs made about you. You get people talk about you that people build statues of you. It's a, it's a really big deal. And as part of the, the ruling family, especially she gets to see her brother and her cousin gaining renown in battle. And she, she wants that. And it's a very, it's a very natural thing to want the kind of recognition that your society gives you. Um, when we yeah, see and her. the fact that that is yeah. stressed rather than like um, I am, I don't want to have femininity, you know, encapsulate me. It's not her being a woman that is really holding her back in that regard, uh, or or giving her the desire to like. Just because I'm a woman, you, you're telling me not, that I can't do this, right? That's not what the, the desire comes from. It comes from the want, the desire for the glory, the you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that you just mentioned the the more sort of ancient epic kind of um, desire to be, to be like Aeneas or you know Achilles or you know something like that from the from the ancients. Right, right, and you know, just going through and this is another you know fun ride through the appendices. You know, you're reading through the appendices about the Rohirrim, and all you find about is like this king fought this battle and this king built this place, but also fought this battle. Like their uh, entire epic is battles. That's wow. all that they talk about. Um, if you look at the history of some of the other peoples, um, you find a lot about, okay, and then there was this disease that came through, and then there was this migration that came through, and they, there's a much more rounded picture of what their society is like. But the, the only reason that we're here are in Rohan period is because the the kings of Gondor in the past needed help. They sent somebody to to find these this, these tribes that lived up to the north, and brought them down to to help with a battle. And like they come in, and there's this decisive victory, and they're given the you know, the land of Rohan. Like their whole culture is defined by battle. That's so interesting, and it really does make her character, I think, that much more kind of countercultural, or really against you know the the, the typical sort of feminine the myth of the eternal feminine and all of that except that you know i don't know if this is in the book so you can tell me this but like you know they made her a bad cook right in the films (laughs) that is that is is, not in the books (laughs) okay that doesn't surprise me at all because there's a lot of ways and we maybe talk about this too that peter jackson kind of ups the ante on the eternal feminine stuff so that anyone can you can only make sense of her if she's really not very you know um, feminine like right she could be a warrior type and whatever but she can't cook um because she's just you know she's gone over the edge <laughs> this is such a good point and i know i know brian loves to talk about this this is such a good point because um peter jackson kind of rejects tolkien's idea altogether that um you can have multiple facets from different kind of what we would consider um categories right so like um peter jackson doesn't believe that like somebody can be all good so he gives uh aragorn and uh um uh, faramir like a lot more struggles than they had in the in the books um and and so the same with eowyn like he has to make this dichotomy you can either be you know this warrior or you can be good at woman things and and that's (laughs) not something that tolkien um necessarily ascribed to and brian you probably have a lot to say about that but Oh, well, I have a lot to say about everything, so I'm not a surprise. Well, we need to um, talk to gender roles in a minute, but go ahead. 
<laughs> yeah, and I think that that's that's a that's an excellent point. Like, so he made her bad at cooking, but we don't one we never see her cook at all in the books. But we we do see her in a nurturing role. We see her taking care of Theoden. Yes. At no point it is ever is it ever implied that she's bad at that. She's good at everything she does. We never see her do anything bad when the people. And, and this is something that we didn't really bring up earlier. Like the reason that she gets left in charge is not because Theoden's like, you know what? You're totally going to be in charge. He asks the people of Rohan, who's going to lead me while I'm gone? I'm taking, you know, Amber with me. Who's going to lead you? And they're like, somebody from, from the house of Errol is going to read us. And we're like, wait, what do you mean? And they're like, um, Eowyn's right there, guys. She's amazing. We'll follow her. The people picked her as their leader. Yeah, yeah. Because she's good. She's really good at what she does, and they mm-hmm. see that. Mm-hmm. We never get this one-sided depiction of her. That's, that's really a, interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. And that's a really good segue into talking about gender roles, because we do see Eowyn kind of defying those gender roles more, and we talked before about how some of that is class roles, too. Um, but but there are other kind of um, interesting ways in which the gender roles are kind of uh, set on end. And uh, Catherine Hasser, uh, writer, she talks about that the Hobbit society really doesn't have gender roles. And I think that's something really interesting I just wanted to bring up and talk about maybe a little bit. Like the Hobbit men are seen doing everything from cleaning to um, planning parties, um, you know, the, and uh, Bilbo raises Frodo, much like um, Tolkien was raised you know, by by a man. Um, and, and I just think that's interesting that that there's this kind of um, egalitarianism uh, among the the hobbits. Um, and we also see this with Goldberry and Tom Bombadil. Right. Tom Bombadil does household chores um, with Goldberry. They there's there seems to be a very equal partnership between them. And so I think that's interesting, in a, especially in a book that tends to, in some ways, on the surface, look very uh, typically masculine roles of fighting and, and all that, you know, we do see throughout this kind of um, these these unusual equality, you know, moments or whatever. Um, what, what do you all think about that? Are there other examples or, or are there some that kind of are the traditional roles? Yeah, you know, I had never thought about that until I saw that in your notes. And it, it's it's fascinating because I feel like. I mean, the movie's obviously my most recent experience with with the whole the story, and there's just not a lot of that. The domestic life of the hobbits really depicted, right? Mm-hmm. So there's there's not a lot, and so just trying to remember my reading of it, and it's like, yeah, well, that is interesting that there isn't this sort of defined the, the women do the domestic stuff and the men don't, you know. Um, so yeah, but I so I don't have an opinion about that, but it, I, I do think it does help him with these problems that we were talking about, you know, this, these idealizations and stuff. It does help him with that. It's interesting. I was thinking through that too. When I saw that note, you know, Bilbo is a incredibly rich hobbit. And in a book, if if I'd seen a book that was written in the early 1900s with this kind of post Victorian mindset, I would have expected him to have a housekeeper. He doesn't. He dusts his own mantelpiece every day. It's part of his morning routine so much that Gandalf puts a note by his clock because he knows he's going to dust the mantelpiece every morning. He does all of that domestic stuff. He has a fancy gold pen for writing letter invitations. Like he is completely all into everything domestic, and we don't see any indication. from the other hobbits that it's any different when they're out camping, all of the different hobbits know how to cook. Um, Sam, you know, we look at like Sam and his relationship with the gaffer and like all the gardening. We see, you know, all of these different roles that are just spread across all of the different hobbits. Um, I hadn't thought about Tom and Goldberry, but it kind of makes sense because we're, we're going back to that Adam and Eve picture. Uh, I feel like the Hobbit is kind of an, an Eden writ large, and then you have this this picture of this Adam and Eve characters, and it and it talks about them doing chores, and they work together so well that the Hobbits are just mesmerized because it's beautiful, 
It's not just that they're mm. efficient. It's beautiful watching them working together um, mm. in that supporting role with each other. So those are those two are definitely are defying gender roles. Now, we, we see some pretty defined gender roles in some of the other societies. Um, mm. And some of that's just by occlusion. They just don't talk about um, women much at all. But specifically, I would say at Minas Tirith, uh, before the Battle of Minas Tirith, I know in the we don't get this in the movies, but in the books, when Pippin and Gandalf show up, all the women are leaving. All the women and children are in wagons heading south so that they're not there in the battle. And the only women that are left are the ones that work for the healers. Interesting. Do you think that some of that is because um, we've talked before about how the Shire is really the idealized agrarian version of England, right? That's his his kind of um, Eden, you know, uh, his perfect society that like because they value domesticity so much, it's more something that they all want to participate in because home and hearth is so important yeah. to, the, to the hobbits and to, to Tolkien as, you know, kind of this metaphor for home and, and peace and safety, mm. that that's something that is not uh, relegated um, to to you know a second class like it might be if war is valued or if you know money making is valued you know you're right. gonna have these but if if home is the ultimate goal if peace and domesticity is the ultimate goal that's mm -hmm. something everybody wants to partake in I think that's a good reading of it yeah that that's a really good point and uh, just shout out to Farmer Maggot's wife because female hobbits have uh, hidden sass too. And she sends a basket of mushrooms along with Frodo because she remembered him stealing mushrooms. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, all right. That's great. Well, I wanted to talk before we wrap up about the theological ideas that we see um, specifically through these women of the Lord of the Rings. Um, there's so much you know, because he was a literary scholar, he's a professor of English. Um, there's so much. Um, in there of uh, metaphors and and there are Homeric metaphors, too, um, but but specifically biblical ones. Um, are there any that jump out at you from these female characters and how uh, his Tolkien's theology comes out through those characters? We've talked a little bit about it before, but I'd love to go into a little bit more of that. Oh, and I'll start, actually, because <laughs> because like um, we've talked before about how uh, Tolkien was uh, a devout Catholic and um, there has been quite a bit of writing on how Galadriel is um, a, a type of Mary. Um, he's described in very kind of Catholic terms as the Lady of Light, um, as a queen. She she helps those in need. Um, she's the greatest of the Elven women at one point. She's described that way. Um, and he even, this is so fun, he even translated the Hail Mary into his Elven language that he created. Um, it's not in the the book it's separate but um i just think that's an interesting little tidbit there where where is that published is that published somewhere where you can get that it's online i found it online wow that's so interesting <laughs> i'd like to hear him read that wouldn't that be great dude? yeah apparently it's beautiful <laughs> yeah i have no doubt his, his whole his linguistic stuff is just absolutely out of this out of this world um yeah the unfortunately the theology that the theological connection that comes into my mind is this kind of Ave Eva, you know, thing like the the idealized mother of, of Jesus versus the sinning, you know, woman. It's like you can be one or the other kind of thing um, mm -hmm. and the problems with that. Uh, and, and so I really do want eventually through this conversation to to get back to my question of why are Christians so enamored of this gender essentialism? You know, why is that so important? to Christians because it's a very destructive kind of ideal. Um, and, and I, I think we're and the Catholics in particular, like, you know, you could look at somebody like, um, sorry, my dog's going nuts. Somebody like, um, Pope John Paul, you know, the second and his theology of the body. And, and there's a lot of gender essentialism in that. And it just makes it tough if a woman doesn't fit that archetype, right. Um, it doesn't fit in one of those roles. Uh, and I, I, see, I think we're seeing some really, well, I would argue that the Christian church's current struggle with um, LGBTQ uh, stuff has to do with the fact that women aren't allowed to be feminine in other ways. You know, I feel like this is one of our big problems. So yeah, that's why I, I raised yeah. this question. 
I, yeah, I think you're right. It made me think, your question makes me think of um, Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, um, where she goes through kind of a history of exactly that, right? Like, why have we decided that essentialism is a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith uh, when it has not historically always been that way? Um, in different ways it has and hasn't, but um, – but yeah, I mean, I think that that's a huge question. I, I wish I knew the answer because then we would have a solution. But but I do think that you <laughs> see that thread definitely through through this and through uh, I think a lot of fantasy, especially. Um, and yes, you definitely argue that that's because it's mostly in historically been written by men. Um, but but there is this sense of um, a real dichotomy. Um, a, a very polarized view of manhood and womanhood and what that means. And, um, and there is a lot of that. And even, even like you were saying, uh, AON kind of transcends that, right? By, by trying to do some things that are considered typically masculine, but she has to fulfill the, the other tropes of she still has to be correct. Beautiful. She still has to be, she has to be beautiful. She has to be loving and caretaking, right? You have to find her in that caretaking role first. Yes. Yes. And it's kind of the Mulan syndrome, right? Like we see that, we see this over and over again with if a woman is, is going to be this main character and is going to transcend these kind of gender roles, she has to make up for it in other ways with this hyper femininity that kind of mm-hmm. makes it okay. And, yeah. and it has to be done. Uh, you know, she ends up dying to save her uncle, right? She, she, or I mean, not dying, but she, she ends up trying to sacrifice herself to save a man, you know, to, to kind of, um, yeah. sanctify her decision. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So self-sacrifice, you know, mm-hmm. um, yep. Yep. What do you think, Brian? Hmm. Yeah. I have, that's, that's a very, there's so many different details that you could go into with this topic. Um, as it relates to Tolkien, even even just that subset, there's there's so many different things you could you could bring up. Um, I think as far as like the way Christians look at gender roles, I think oh man, some of it just has to do with um, it's easier to put something in a box if you can label it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so if you yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, I was just thinking how, you know, gender essentialism, you know, it, it's safer, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it, it's in a sense saying this is what it means to be a woman. This is what it means to be a man. And therefore, I know how to, you know, behave in those particular roles and know what to expect. And I have control over that. Yeah, it's and it so keeps much, the power yeah. dynamic. It props it, up the yes. power dynamic. It, that's precisely what it does. It props up the power dynamic. And so uh, the way that woman's gender, which is always second, right, the second sex, uh, is defined. It's always with by what the man needs that woman to be, right? Um, and Virginia mm-hmm. Woolf talks about this as well. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. he wants to look at her and see his own fic- features exaggerated, you know. Um, so she needs to be that uh, for him, that mirror uh, for him. And so it becomes incredibly powerful and very hard to dislodge, and very hard for a woman in today's Christian church who doesn't fit one of these archetypal kind of gender essentialist type of personalities or skill sets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very hard for that person to feel welcomed in the church, you know, notwithstanding, you know, sexual orientation. I'm just putting, not even saying, I'm just saying, you know, just not a typical woman. Right. 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 Then you, then you don't mm-hmm. fit. Um, right. Then you, why would you stay in that church? Why would you, you know, continue to worship if what they're really worshiping is a kind of like, you know, the essence of woman is first and then you do, you have to conform to that. Whereas of course, to Beauvoir being an existentialist is saying, no, existence becomes before essence, right? Mm-hmm. Like who you are actually is as an individual more, you know, telling and should be speaking back to that, to that mythology that we've set up for power reasons. Yeah, I think that's really, I true. think the, the word conform that you used is probably really key to that whole dynamic because if you have an ideal, if you have this this very narrow framework that you allow people to exist in, then it's easier to maintain control over them. Yep, yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, it's really right. sad, and we are just, we are so fearful, and Christians in general just oddly are so fearful, right? Like I'm going to lose control. I'm going to, and we're seeing it right now, writ large in our political climate, right? The fear is just rampant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this world, I don't recognize this anymore. I'm, I don't have a place in it. I'm, you know, and so they, 
they dwell down on like the places. <laughs> this is your place. This is my place. This is what it means to be a man. This is what it means mm-hmm. to be a woman. Why don't women wear dresses anymore? My dad just said this to like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> it, it, it's like, you know, <laughs> this is upsetting my world. It's upsetting my, my universe. And I, I'm afraid, you know, uh, well, Jesus is asking us not to be afraid, you know, so I, this is one of those areas that I wish we would step up and not be afraid. Yeah, I think that's really true. Yeah. Um, another area of kind of theology that I just wanted to point out because I love it is, um, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled on the the different male characters as um, the offices of Jesus, um, the prophet, priest and king roles and stuff like that. But I uh love the idea of Arwen being a Christ figure um that she gives up eternity um to become mortal because of love um love for a man versus Christ's love for mankind um but i just think that like anytime i can find a female christ figure i just i just really like that because i think that it kind of again it transcends our normal idea of gender roles and we get to see um a picture of christ in the female lived experience uh, you know it's fiction but still um and not just in this typically masculine one. I think that's really neat. I would take that and go even further and say that Arwen is a picture of Luthien, who is uh, even more of a picture of Christ, in that yeah, she literally goes to heaven and intercedes with God f- for the sake of man. She does? Yeah, so when Baron dies she tells him to wait in the halls of mandos and then she lays down and dies herself goes to the undying lands and sings a song before the valar that is a combining of all of the sorrows of the children of iluvatar and it's so moving that they say we, we've got to do something and manway speaks with iluvatar and comes back with okay We'll restore him to life and we'll restore you to life. You have two options. We'll restore both of you to life and you can go back to Middle Earth as mortals and live. We can't guarantee it's going to be a happy life, but you'll have a life to live. Or he passes on to um, the place that Iluvatar has set aside for men and you stay here on the Undying Lands for eternity and are happy. That's the choice that she's given. So she literally goes and intercedes at the, th- in the throne of, at the throne of the gods for the sake of Baron um, and not, not even to go into the whole fact that like her power is in singing, which is the, the force of creation in, in middle earth. So the whole like word incarnate and all that good stuff. Wow. And she, and she does choose mortality. She chooses to give up her eternity and go back. And that's why then it becomes kind of this pattern that, okay, Arwen has to make a similar choice later. Wow. You guys are really redeeming Arwen as a character for me through this. I mean, I've never, I didn't dislike her, but, you know, just kind of watching the films, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's her name? It's just like, you know. Also, a silent point. Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. No, I was just saying, yeah, you you get this this very different picture of her as this person's just kind of just pining away in Rivendell and like literally dying of sorrow because of all of this. When she's really not that person at all. <laughs> yeah, it's one of many characters that is looks way better in the books. There's also a really fun fact about, um, and I did not know this until maybe this year. Uh, the Tolkien puts the destruction of the Ring and the fall of Sauron on March 25th, um, which is the traditional Anglo-Saxon date for the crucifixion of Christ and the Annunciation. Um, so being, being a devout Catholic, that was very, you know, that was very intentional on his part. So there are there are so many uh, theological themes and and metaphors and allegories and everything. As much as he likes to pretend he doesn't like allegories, um, <laughs> there's, there's so much theology in there. And especially in the Silmarillion, you get a lot of it, too. But um, but, yeah, it's, it's I have very one more. Oh, go for it. The only time we see worship. In the Lord of the Rings, it's the elves singing a song to Elbereth, the queen of the gods. Huh. Did not know. Oh. That's the only time we see that in the Lord of the Rings. We see references to people that are worshiping like Morgoth and Sauron and things like that. But the only time we see the elves worship, they're worshiping Elbereth, 
the wife of Manwe, the queen of the gods, who incidentally was the only one of the Valar that Melkor was terrified of. Interesting. That's very cool. Well, let's move on to passing on because we're running out of time. Uh, Christina, what do you have to recommend to us today? Well, not surprisingly, I'm going to recommend Second Sacrifice Simone de Beauvoir, but particularly Chapter 11, which has to do with this myth and reality. And de Beauvoir just really very good and precise about the way that she unpacks that. And I think it's essential reading for Christians today. That's so good. Yeah, I love it so much. Brian, what about you? I'm going to cheat and do two. Uh, the first is uh, there's a podcast called the Amon Soul Podcast. It's an Orthodox Christian podcast, actually, where they talk about the intersections of Orthodox Christianity and uh, Tolkien's Legendarium. And it's fantastic and fun. Uh, but the the book that I recommend, it's called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe and a Great War by Joseph Leconte. And it really um, talks about the post-World War One um era and like all of the despair that was going on in the world and how it affected literature and how that affected Tolkien Lewis as well. Um, but how like, just like the trauma of all of that and the people that were lost and like his personal friends that were lost in that really colors his writing in addition to his faith experience and everything else. That's awesome. Thank you. I'm going to recommend uh, another of Tolkien's works. It's a little bit unusual. It's called Letters from Father Christmas. It is a compilation of letters that he sent to his children um, from Father Christmas, from, from this you know character that that he came up with. And it is the most winsome, charming, amazing um, collection of letters. And he did it over the course of their childhoods. And, and you can kind of see as each child gets older, you know, he writes to different ones and everything. But um, he, he, you know, he could just tell that he is just overflowing with this creativity and this um, imagination mm. that just comes out in these really hilarious characters. I mean, he does different handwriting for all the different characters that write the letters and there's pictures and they've, they've bound them all together in this book. And we read it every year for Christmas to our kids over the, the month of December. And it is absolutely hilarious. It's charming and it's definitely worth getting. It will become a family favorite. I promise. Um, that is well, so they, funny. Cause I, yeah. you are like, you are like the, the mother that I wish I was and never will be. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Um, this has been amazing. I know we could probably talk for like five more hours and I would never get tired, but I really appreciate you guys um, joining us for this. This has been great. And thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at network. And check out the show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Philippic is our press liaison. For Brian and Christina, I'm Ilea Danner-Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss Joss Whedon. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.